Hello and welcome to episode 102 of Tea or Books. I'm Simon. I'm Rachel. Uh, in this episode, in the first half, we'll be talking books about grief. Do we read them? Yes or no? And in the second half, two novels with confusingly similar titles that I'm looking at, so I'm not going to get them wrong. Four Gardens by Marjorie Sharp versus Five Windows by D.E. Stevenson. Uh, more exciting than all of that is the fact that we have a guest. We have Claire. You will probably know her as the captive reader. Uh, all the way from Vancouver, Canada. Welcome, Claire. Thank you very much. So delighted to have you here. Re- really pleased. Also, I will note, Canada is the country in which I think we have the lowest rating on Apple Podcasts. So, <laughs> so Canadians, <laughs> is this what you wanted? We've got one of your your own here. And now give us five stars. <laughs> um, how are you, Claire? And uh, well, whilst you're telling us about, well, tell us a bit about yourself. Tell us about your your blog. Tell us about your reading taste, maybe. Okay, for, I'm, first of all, I'm I'm ashamed by my fellow countrymen and their ratings. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, I so I'm Claire. I'm from Vancouver, Canada. So out here on the west coast by the ocean, where Simon and Rachel should come and visit me one day. And I blog at the Captive Reader, and I've blogged now for 12 years this month. Which has gone really fast, hasn't it? <laughs> um, in my day-to-day life, I work in financial services, so it is wildly removed from anything book-related. Um, <laughs> that is my background. That is my education. So this has always been the fun part of my life. Uh, that, so everything is balanced out between books and finance. <laughs> I don't think I know what financial services means. What does it mean? I, you don't need to know. Okay, this. fine, <laughs> yeah. fine. Yeah. Don't, don't worry about it. There, it many things are involved. <laughs> <laughs> well, th- I'm sure someone has to do it, and we're grateful to you. Yeah. It. <laughs> um, what are you reading at the moment? Well, I just finished my reread of Five Windows last night, so that was very nice. That's the third or the fourth time I've read that. Oh, wow. um, yeah, I, I, don't, I never get tired of it, as we will talk about in detail. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've read way too many things this month. I think I've just given up watching television and movies, and it's kind of work, activity, books, which is not a bad recipe for starting the year, I have to say. I've been reading crime novels, which is like, you guys have followed me for 12 years. I don't do that, but I've been really into Jane Casey's Maeve Kerrigan series, which is wonderful and comes recommended by many other bloggers, um, Sarah Manning. Simon, who I know you're oh, yeah, good friends on She's Twitter, great. is a big fan. Um, and I think Elaine at Random Jottings is another fan. So I think those are the two who kind of pushed me towards that. Um, now I am on the precipice of what to pick next. I think it's going to be The Good Companions by J.B. Priestley, which appears to be about a traveling troupe of musicians, artists of some sort. Um, Have you read that, yeah. Rachel? I know you like J.B. Priestley. I love Jason PC. It's actually on my um, bookshelf because I bought it not that long ago after reading another one of his novels. I think it's a troupe of, it's a repertory theatre company who are travelling the country. Yes. Yeah. It looks fun. Maybe I'll, it, maybe I'll read it too. We can read it together, Claire. Oh, I would like that. Oh. And actually, Rachel, speaking of books that you would like, I just finished a very, very new release that came out this month called Let's Get Physical by Danielle Friedman, which is all oh. about women and exercise, specifically in America. Um, but kind of since the 1950s onwards and how different exercise trends have reflected what has been going on in women's lives and certainly kind of their evolution into the workforce and uh, a bit more, you know, feminism, liberation, all of those things. I think that would be of interest for you, given some of the things that, you know, you've been really involved in the last couple of years. 
Yeah, that sounds amazing. I'm going to look that up. Thank you. Also, you hear a lot about Jane Fonda and Jazzercise, <laughs> all sorts of things. Buns of yeah. Steel are in there. Yep. Yeah. Fantastic. Great. Uh, Rachel, what are you reading? How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Um, I've just recovered from um, having to write loads of essays for my um, master's. So now that's out of the way, I'm free. It was a pretty intense few weeks where I was like, why have I done this to myself? <laughs> and you know, it's even worse when you're like, this was voluntary. I didn't have to do this. <laughs> um, but that, I'm done now. So I haven't really been reading anything because I've just been mired in, you know, reading academic stuff. But um, I have, well, actually, for, for Christmas, I got books about ghosts. So I told you about the one I'd read previously. That's when I was at yours, wasn't it? Yeah, in um, fact, my friend Kirsty, who we had lunch with, uh, bought it after you mentioned it and is really enjoying oh, it. Oh, great. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad. So um, I got another book about ghosts for Christmas from my um, best friend from university. And um, it's called Ghosts, A History. Sure. Um, and it's by a woman whose name I can't remember, but you'll look it up afterwards, won't you? Her name's Susan. And embarrassingly, I worked with her when I worked at the B&A, and I can't think of her last name because obviously I just called her Susan. So Owen, Susan Owen, that's her name. She's um, She used to be the art, the paintings curator at the V&A. So it's a, story, it's a history of ghosts through visual imagery. Um, over time so yeah so a lot of the stuff that she's covering I've sort of made it up to the 17th century in the book it's chronological I've made it up that far so and um, a lot of the stuff that I read in the previous book is coming in so I'm like yeah I already know this Um, feeling very knowledgeable (laughs) Um, but it's interesting to read about it from a different perspective because she's focusing on it from sort of literary and and art historical perspective and how people have presented ghosts um, and also how the way in which ghosts our perception of what ghosts look like has been shaped by the ways in which we presented uh, d- different periods of time presented ghosts. And something she said that was really interesting. Um, she said one of the reasons why ghosts are depicted as they are, sort of with a sheet and things, is because when they were first producing woodcuts in the in the 17th century, it was the easiest shape to make. So, mm. yeah. So you know that perception of of ghosts that we have isn't actually based on eyewitness reports. It's just simply on you know what how can we reproduce this with three lines on a block so um i found that really interesting so I've, i'm halfway through that i'm reading lots of things at the moment actually which is not like me i'm, I'm a bit I've, i mean I've, you know when you're in that state of mind where you can't really settle to anything so i'm sort of half reading that i'm also reading one of my french um murder mysteries that i love that take me ages because i have to read them i'm i have to look up a lot of words as i read um uh, which is similar i love uh, the Maigret novels. I'm still reading uh, Un Noël de Mercoy, so, you know, we're still at, in Christmas in my reading life there. That's, that's how long it's taken me to read. Um, and um, I've obviously just today, I've, I've been reading all day, five windows, ready for, for this. Obviously, I was a bit last minute. Um, and actually, I have to say, uh, well, I, well, we'll talk about it more later, but I've, I've not read any of Eve Stevenson since I tried Miss Bunkle's book when Persephone first published it, which must have been at least 10 years ago. Um, for some reason, I didn't like Miss Bungle's book. I remember vividly thinking I don't like this at all, and I really, was really disappointed. And this feels completely different, so now I'm thinking maybe I need to maybe I need to read more Dee Stevenson. Well, we won't jump the yes. gun. We'll get on yeah. track a little bit. Claire, yeah. I know, has done a, a, the Lord's work in ranking Dee <laughs> Stevenson, so <laughs> I can share later which ones you should yeah. read. Um, 
to go back to the crime novel you you mentioned or novels you mentioned claire are they are they like uh lots of blood everywhere types of crime or are they more like in puzzles to solve sort of crime um they're not lots of blood everywhere which is because i'm very squeamish which yeah, is why i too, don't yeah. read crime right and you know reading them you know alone in a house kind of thing i could handle that which is good <laughs> so that that's the scariness level for me really what makes them special is that they are so character driven like usually mm. there's very you know characters in crime novels can be cutouts and quite flat and mm. i have no real interest in returning to them here you know there's there's excellent characterization of the sort that you expect from any book, but not necessarily this genre, which is unfair to many books in the genre, I expect. Um, <laughs> but there we go. <laughs> yeah, I'm reading, uh, uh, I guess, a murder mystery at the moment as well. One of the things I'm reading is called Dishonored Bones by John Trench, um, that I actually spent quite a lot of time recently reading by the side of the road after I burst a tyre and was waiting for the, <laughs> for the RSE to come. Thankfully, I had a book in the car. Uh, it's, it's, um, just one <laughs> just one and I almost didn't drink so I'm just driving to church I don't need a book thankfully <gasps> I overrode that stupid idea but do you know what that is a life lesson for all of us right there yeah isn't it yeah, yeah. Um, and it's sort of it's sort of John Buckany I guess in that it's also an adventure novel but I think John Buckany might be um, too generous maybe more <laughs> I don't know <laughs> Hardy Boys or something it's uh <laughs> The, the hero was already almost drowned and almost fallen off a cliff. Um, well, he did fall <laughs> off a cliff, but he survived. Uh, what? Well, and there's underground um, warrens with mysterious people hiding in them, all that sort of thing. Uh, I got, I've got a feeling that when we find out who murdered the person in the opening scene, I probably won't have, have heard of them and it will not be satisfying. But it's a, it's a romp. <laughs> I'm enjoying it as we go. Um, and I'm also reading a Canadian novel. In, uh-huh. uh, not only Canadian, in fact, West Coast, Canada, I believe. Um, uh, Swamp Angel by Ethel Wilson, which um, Ethel Wilson me- uh, listeners might know as the Persephone author. She wrote um, Hetty Dorval. But uh, this one is about um, a woman who decides to leave her husband and go, and, I guess, make a living for herself in various cabins and waysides in rural British Columbia. Um, yeah. If you come to Vancouver, I can walk you past the incredibly beautiful apartment building where she lived. Oh, wow. Okay, I didn't know yeah. she was that, like, sort of enough of a name there to have a, you know, plaque and everything. Or... We we don't really have many plaques. Like, we, sure. we certainly don't have little yeah. plaques like you guys have. But we have little things. I can also show yeah. you a street where Margaret Atwood probably lived for a while. Probably lived. Could no one ask her? They don't know the exact house. She's, I mean, she could, she's still alive. <laughs> <laughs> Um, things change fast out here especially yeah. in real estate <laughs> uh, and Swamp Angel is apparently the name of a gun although I don't know if that's just the name of a gun in this book or if that is more widely the name of a gun, I don't know a lot about guns from that silent taste, I suspect neither of you know nope. much about guns nope. either but any gun experts <laughs> do let me know um, great, well it sounds like we're all reading a wide variety of interesting things as usual um, and Let's go on to the first topic, which uh, Claire very kindly sent us options for things we could mm-hmm. talk about, which, you know, as you'll know, uh, most most listeners will, will have spotted that we are often desperate for things to talk about. So it was, it was <laughs> a real bounty to get six. Um, and I know that you gave us various options, Claire, but if you'd like to talk to, to us about uh, why you came up with, with this one and any early thoughts. 
Okay, so <laughs> I I think I came up with it because it's been a pretty dark couple of years. But mm-hmm. um, and you know, it seems to be a trend too that there seems to be more and more books coming out about grief. But it's one of those things that I think the first encounters, hopefully, a lot of us have with grief are through books. Um, it is certainly a favorite topic in children's literature. Um, I mean, in Victorian children literature, like everyone is dead all the time. Everyone's an orphan. <laughs> um, and just how, you know, do we, in- I thought it would just be an interesting topic that way. It's something that we live with throughout our reading lives, but do we like it? I know I've come across certain readers who don't want to read about that, who feel there's enough in their lives already. Um, I personally find it helpful in, you know, in processing feelings or, you know, in preparing me for experiences that I would have had later on in life. Um, yeah. But, and I think there are also different types of grief to talk about. So, and how that changes, you know, the, the grief of someone you lose in a natural way and a natural time in their life versus mm-hmm. something that's more sudden. Um, and then also, you know, the grief of lost places and times and certain things like that. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, Rachel, what's the, what sort of books coming to your mind? Why do you have to start with me? That's wicked. Um, <laughs> well, because I mean, you, can, you can ask me instead if you like, and I can start talking. <laughs> no, I'm, I'll try. Um, actually, Claire, you um, gave me a, a little bit of inspiration when you mentioned Victorian children's books, because I hadn't actually thought about that. And Specialty um, topic for you. Yeah, specialty topic for me. I'll settle down, everyone. Um, my favourite book as a child was The Secret Garden, which is obviously suffused with grief. Um, and wasn't really something I suppose I thought much about when I was a child. I was more entranced by the, um, countrysideness of it and also by the fact that I could see a lot of myself in Mary, um, bossing everyone <laughs> around. But, um, the, the fact that I think is is what's very interesting is that children's books people say oh you know 19th century children's books are so depressing um and you know with things aren't the same now but I think actually grief is a huge topic in children's books and I think you're exactly right in that they are a way to start preparing us for those feelings that that we start you know and experiences that we start to have at a young age and can't necessarily put into words and I think for me what's really interesting about um The Secret Garden as a book is the fact that we the grief becomes something that affects everything in the world it's not just affects the people it also affects the place um and you know the garden has been abandoned because nobody can bear to go in it and you know nature itself seems to be grieving and i just think it's a really powerful visual image and as the garden gets used and people start to use the space again and start to see beauty in it again then everything starts to get better and um I just really love that kind of that metaphor and that showing that grief is something that can be live you have to live with it you have to get on with it and over time it can be turned into something special and beautiful um and yeah so I think that for me is is a real really wonderful book about grief that's expressed in a way that children can learn to come to terms with it um what i didn't like is a little princess which Mm. is also about grief um but for me that one is i was upset because i watched the film first and in the film the dad doesn't die so um when i read the book 
and you know he does die at the end um I mean I was distraught my mum had to like you know take the book away from me it was um it was too much and I think there can be too much rawness in books about grief sometimes I think for that for me when because it happens at the end I didn't feel like there was enough time for me to process it and to Mm. deal with it it was just a shock um so we have her grief at the beginning um but then it's it's like the hope that he's going to come back so yeah I don't know um I don't know where I'm going with this tour I'm just rambling um but I think it can be shocking yeah it it can be shocking for kids I I know you know I was definitely reading the same books as you as a kid and <laughs> um, and things like Little Women with Beth's death. Oh, oh uh, my being, right. That that was upsetting, but it's also you see what a impact it has on everyone else. I as a kid, the books I was the most obsessed with were the Anne of Green Gables books. Because oh, obviously course, I'm a wonderful yeah. Canadian. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and there there is death throughout those. Obviously, Anne comes as an orphan. There's Matthew's death, oh. and then there's children's deaths. And I think yeah. reading about that as a child, for some reason, those were the hardest ones for me. So the, I mean, there's the loss of a newborn child uh, in Anne's House of Dreams, and then in Rilla of Ingleside, uh, there's an adult child's death. And I put the book down and I walked away for a year and a half. At that stage, I was just too angry and I was too upset. I was also nine, but I was very upset. And, I, you know, like with um, A Little Princess, yeah, it's it, it's upsetting. Like that's, That was my way of dealing with it at nine. I just walked away. It's like, I, I can't deal with that. I don't want to right now. Yeah, it's yeah. fair enough. Because I think the sort of books that I was reading um, at that time, Ina Blyton or something, often there are children who are absent or dead, but... That there is no real grieving. It, it seems to have become maybe more sanitized by by the time that generation of children's books were coming out. Mm-hmm. It was more sort of just, you just move on, um, don't talk about it. Um, yeah, more like a plot I think, device, I guess. Yeah, you really see the the change in people's attitudes towards death through children's literature because it is so in your face in nineteenth century and Edwardian literature because it was in your face at that time. You know, most children would have experienced the death of a close family member. Whereas by the time you get to be near Blyton, it's like, you know, often they're sent away for the summer while something terrible is happening at home. But mm, the children mm, don't mm. seem to care very much about it. And they're just off having a ripping time. Um, and, <laughs> you know, that's uh, that's and that is a that's really not. I mean, it's what, 40 years really between, you know, these Edwardian writers and Enid Blyton. But so much change changed in such a short period of time towards our attitude towards death and also towards our attitude of what children should be expected to handle. Yeah, and a novel that um, I think we've, we've talked about a few times on here that is really interesting about grief in a very subtle way is uh, The Summer Book by Tevi Anson, where mm-hmm. uh, the little girl's mum has died shortly before the book starts, but it's not really uh, confronted head-on. It's just sort of woven through the, the fact that um, the grandmother's daughter and, and, the, and the child's mother... I think I'm right, it's not daughter-in-law, it's, it's my daughter. Anyway... So the generation between the two of them having recently died, mm-hmm. um, and I think it's really beautiful there how Janssen looks at how grief weaves its way through the, the minutiae for every day after that, but isn't necessarily at the forefront of people's conversations. Yeah, it is. Um, that is a wonderful book about, I hadn't thought about that, but it is about grief, isn't it? Um and another I love that is very openly about grief, like the whole book is about grief, is um, In the Springtime of the Year by Susan Hill. Oh. 
um, which I know you have mixed feelings about. <laughs> the Rachel <laughs> Susan Hill voice, yes. <laughs> <laughs> which I think is wonderful. Uh, opinions differ uh, about... Uh, <laughs> let me try and get this right. I think the main character's fiancé dies in a in a sort of accident with a tree yeah. falling on him. Is yes. that right? Yeah. 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 Uh, and it was based in real life Susan Hill's A Man That She Loved Died. I think not that, not that way, but it's very... Um, she draws from her own life in it. Uh, and... Yeah, it's much starker, I guess, and much more. Um, yeah, it's not like a subtle thing in the background for sure. Um, so I guess those are some. We've talked about some novels, but uh, how about real life or like nonfiction books about about grief? Is that something that either of you uh, read? Not intentionally always, but it, there's more and more of them. Um, I think the best book I've ever read for nonfiction about grief is called Making Toast by Roger Rosenblatt. And it is about his experiences and his wife's experiences, I believe. It's been a while since I read this one. Uh, when his adult daughter suddenly dies um, very unexpectedly and he and his wife kind of step in to help take care of her family um, while all of them are grieving and trying to process this incredibly sudden event. And so, you know, they are stepping in and taking care of their grandchildren at that point. And it, it's very slim, but it, I just remember it being incredibly powerful um, without being morose. I guess or more. I think the loss of a child is. I, mean, I think that I, that is clearly what got me in the end books is the loss of a child is such an unnatural thing and such an upsetting event. Um, it, it does make the world feel like something has gone very very wrong and this book really captures that well but also you know there is a way forward and there has to be for everyone yeah i the the best book about grief that i think i've read is um about losing a brother uh let not the ways of the sea by simon stevenson about his brother who died in the um tsunami in 2004 mm. 2005 um and it's yeah similarly i mean I, you're not going to make a hierarchy of grief i imagine it's but it's it's not the same as losing a child but it but it is someone who is central to his world uh, and it's a book that's also a travel log because he goes to go stay and help rebuild the area it's also quite philosophical it's also a memoir so yeah lots of lots of wonderful things in there and i found every well yeah every time i picked that book up to read it i cried <laughs> which was mm. embarrassing in like the work canteen but um <laughs> <laughs> it's a good way to good way to you know bit, knock down barriers between colleagues um and in fact, I thought it was so brilliant. I tried. I read another about the same um, disaster, but called "Wave" by Sonali Duranigiala, something like that. Um, who lost? Oh gosh, I think her husband and and two of her children and her parents. I think it was. Yeah, and I remember she, you mentioning that once and being like, "I don't think I can read that." I yeah, think yeah, I can't handle that level of loss. And it was a level of loss where she basically um, had a. Br- such a big breakdown that she uh she was extremely violent to other people she was uh, uh, um sort of stalking a family who lived i think in a house that she'd used to live in and it was it's one of these things where all her actions were clearly destructive both self-destructive and destructive to others but you certainly aren't going to to fault anyone who reacts that way to something that enormous uh but yeah it was a difficult it was a difficult book to read and it was one of those i don't think it was a particularly good book but it was um suddenly an about an experience that goes almost beyond comprehension 
end of silence people <laughs> Rachel, <laughs> Rachel do you read uh, non-fiction grief uh, no I can't say I do um I've always meant to read Jane Didion's um book mm. about grief but I've not got around to it um I think it's I'm get very emotionally up you know involved in things like that and I think I would just find it too upsetting I don't mind reading fictional stuff, but when it's real and it's really happened to somebody, it's just kind of like I can't cope and I just like I'm just a weeping mess. So, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I find the ones with that maybe a little more distance in time, perhaps. Uh, uh, I really loved all the like no, all the lives we ever lived by Catherine Smith, which uh, is her processing the grief about her dad through a reading of To the Lighthouse. Oh. Uh, so it's really interesting um, and much subtler than maybe that sounds but um and it's it's not literary criticism it is sort of her returning to a book that is something that she loves deeply and then processing her very complex feelings through that and i think what one of the brilliant things about that book is that um it's clear how deeply she loves her loved her father but also he comes across as quite uh troubled and difficult and in many ways antagonistic person so it's a very honest portrait and and gets across that complexity of how you can deeply love someone who isn't actually that great a person and i think that's an, an interesting comment you're seeing more and more books about people who are processing particularly the loss mm-hmm. of a parent through other things right i mean we've got mm-hmm. like wild you know oh, she's yeah. dealing with her mother's death yes. like h's for hawk is also dealing with a parent's yes. death um there's a few more out there you know i I like food writing so there's one called a half-baked idea by olivia potts which is also very much you know dealing with the loss of a parent by taking up baking um yeah there's there's i I was making a list i'm like there's a lot out there this seems like a a a common reaction is you need something else to channel your grief into Um, that's interesting and i guess perhaps um conversations in general and publishing in general is becoming more emotionally literate over the past 10 years and certainly that yeah yeah (laughs) and more willing to discuss these things and i mean part of having to do it through something else or channeling it through another thing is i guess getting some variety in the publishing market but is also uh yeah i think really interesting way of showing how um it can suffuse any sort of genre of writing yeah maybe we are coming back to the victorian level of being able to talk about death again yeah when i I think about books that talk about grief one of the best portrayals of grief i think is in wives and daughters with squire hamley and i don't know how familiar you two are with i've not read it for a very long time but i did read it at university i love it i used to reread it almost annually um and it, it's a pretty perfect book as far as I'm concerned, except for the fact that she foolishly died before finishing it. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. She's very rude. Um, <laughs> so rude. I bet, I mean, he, he is this wonderful character and he loses both a wife and a child through the book. And the way he grieves is so touching whatever time you're reading it. It's so recognizable mm-hmm. in the way we see people grieve now. It's so honest. It's so familiar. And I think that is what you know, certain Victorian authors could do, whether, you know, Mrs. Gaskell, Trollope, people who were very good at the the timeless details about human behavior rather than caricatures. Um, sorry, Dickens. But <laughs> I, I think I think that that sort of honesty and. Yeah, it, it's um, it, it's something that makes those books worth reading 100 years later, 150, 170 for some of them now. Mm-hmm. 
So, yeah, I think that's a really good point. Yeah, maybe it's um, a time of unrest and, and international crisis that, that helps <laughs> <laughs> bring out those things. Uh, maybe I, well, I don't know. Well, I'm going to that. Obviously, there have been many periods like that over the years, but there's something in the waters at the moment that makes us more willing to talk about these things. More willing to talk about, I think, all levels of mental health now. And mm. I guess maybe then it was just that, you know, Queen Victoria was in her cult of mourning for a long period. Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, speaking of which, there is, what is it? A Magnificent Obsession by Helen Rappaport, which is a oh, yeah. basic, yes, that, I mean, that is the whole, here's a cultural shift because of one woman's grief over the loss of her husband. Um, so if you like history, that is a wonderful book. Um, I used to serve her in the in the Bodleian. <gasps> Maybe while she was researching that book, who knows? <laughs> oh, she has a, she has a new book coming out this year. I'm very excited about. So, oh, what's the new book? Um, it's again about Russian. So let me pull it up. Sorry, I don't remember titles. I think it's after the Romanovs, and let me see. It's coming out this spring, or at least it's coming out this spring in Canada. I have no idea how publication schedules are <laughs> arranged this year. It's been bizarre. Um, yes, yeah, so after the Romanovs, Russian exiles in Paris from the Belle Epoque through revolution and war. Oh, that's like that. sounds that. irresistible, yeah. right? Yeah. Wow. Exciting. And I think she had something about, I'm going to blank on the name here. Is it Mary Seacol? At least that one, yeah. Yes, okay. I think there is a book coming out about that as well. Gosh. Or out already. She is a busy woman, isn't she? Yeah. No wonder she has such piles of books. Yeah. Um, We talked about lots of, like, examples we think are good. Do any of us have any books we've read where we thought it wasn't handled well? Probably, but I've struck them from my mind. I I mean, there's a lot of very trite stuff. Um, Mm. I mean, anything... I don't want to uh, too wide a brush here, but kind of all of that flowery romantic stuff around the first world war, there's some very Mm. sentimental stuff that just, it was a way of processing grief, but doesn't always ring true. um, Afterwards, I was actually, you mentioned um, John Buchan earlier, Simon, Mm. I read, these for remembrance last year which is basically it's a collection of portraits he wrote about friends who had died i can't remember if they all died in the first world war or if it was just around that time but anyways he he basically wrote them i think for the families of of those friends who had passed away and you know everyone was superlative everyone was (laughs) perfect right but i mean it was a way of trying to help everyone through their grief but it you know how true it is or mm. how emote, you know, it, it's, I think there was a lot of that sort of writing happening around then. So for me, that doesn't always work, but I, I think if I were a family member, I would love that. If I were a member of the general um, population reading that it, it didn't, it didn't speak to me in the way, you know, fiction can, or nowadays, certainly the more personal memoir does. Yeah, it's interesting you say that, actually, because I found that about Testament of Youth, which in many ways is Mm. a wonderful book. But her depiction of the people that she loved who had died, I just thought, you know, this is just too, like, hagiographic. And especially when she would talk about her fiancé, who she in reality barely knew. Um, 
it was just like you know you're turning him in and all the things he would have done and how brilliant he would have been and all the rest of it so well you just don't know that and all of that sort of literature that started this kind of cult of believing that all of the people who had died i.e upper class private school boys who had died had had robbed us of this future of brilliance and and i understand that they needed to process their grief in that way and they needed to believe that but um as a contemporary reader it just feels rather you know well over the top for for one thing but also insensitive to the fact that actually well most of the people who died were working class people who you know and you suggesting that all of these officers who've died would have gone on to do amazing things but who cares about the rest um Mm -hmm. is is rather insensitive and also um yeah i mean but it's interesting that period does has produced or did produce a lot of also poetry to do with grief and a lot of that stuff has become you know canonical and is what is used to help people process grief still now you know people read those sorts of poems at funerals and things so obviously they do speak to some people um and they have their use but i think yeah you're right in novels and and memoirs of the period they can become it does become a bit saccharine and i think particularly when it gets sort of tied up with unquestioning patriotism or yeah yes um, yeah or, or the idea that as you say that anyone who any soldier is a blameless hero i mean that's mm-hmm. something that certainly hasn't gone out of uh, the you know popular narrative no. i guess um then yeah it, it sort of i don't know i guess yeah those it, it would have helped people i'm sure to, to process and be cathartic but it makes it um yeah it loses all the nuance yeah, and it, it and I think it. I mean, I think that patriotism point is a good one because you see the change in how people wrote about it, like almost as soon as the war was over, right? From like 1919 onwards, you're starting to see people process things a little bit more mm. um, as they get away from some of you know the jingoism and things that were part of their daily lives. There, one I was thinking about this in the mountains by Elizabeth von Arnhem doesn't it doesn't head on address grief necessarily, but it also it's just a weird book. It's kind of a book of yeah. two halves. The first half of the book though, really is this woman returning to a home in um, the Swiss mountains after the war and to this world that, you know, she remembers from being with friends. And I think particularly with a partner or a loved one um, and none of them are there now. And so it, she is, she is she's sort of depressed, I think, when the book begins and, mm-hmm. you know, still still processing the loss of all of these people, plus this way of life. And to me, that level of distance that, you know, that's what rings truer is that, you know, she's lost people she loves. She's lost this whole world that she loved. Um, and then the book just gets very strange after that. But um, <laughs> different, different tone entirely. <laughs> Yeah, it's not one of her great successes, is it? That one, no, it, I mean, they're, they're, neither half is bad. It's just a really weird mix. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, we should pray draw this this part to a close, but uh, it's always nice when we have three people because we can actually mm. make a definitive <laughs> teal book decision. Oh, yeah. uh, whether, it, in this case, yes or no for books about grief. And I'll, I'll start the board rolling with yes, I've, I've, I'm drawn to both fiction and nonfiction about grief. I find it fascinating. Um, I'm another yes. Oh well, I, I'm a no, so I'm outvoted. Oh, there we there go. go. The eyes have it. 
<laughs> I'm glad to be able to sway it. Yeah, yeah thank you. <laughs> uh, there we go. Uh, and yeah, in the second half, as mentioned, we will do two books with, um, in some ways, quite similar premises. Four Gardens by Marjorie Sharp and Five Windows by D.E. Stevenson. And uh, Claire, would you like to introduce us to one of them? Your choice. I will do Five Windows, please. Great. Go for it. Um, so I'm particularly excited about this topic because I think I've been suggesting it for several years. And now, <laughs> finally, both of these books are back in print. Yes, um, hurrah. Yes, hurrah indeed. So not only can we talk about them, but listeners can actually read them. So Five Windows is by D.E. Stevenson, who's one of my favorite yet very uh, variable authors. Uh, and it is the story of David Kirk. And it is telling his life story for, it's a pretty short story as it's only taking him to his mid-20s through five windows that he looks out of through his life. So it takes him from his childhood in the Scottish borders, living with his parents, to school days in Edinburgh, and then through three very different homes in London as he starts to make his way as a young man. And it tells of the changes that he goes through as he grows up in all of those stages. Brilliant. That was, that was very well summarised, Claire. I was just thinking, gosh, if only we could summarise like <laughs> You knew this all the names and everything. Would be, yeah, like this podcast would be so much more professional if you were here all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rachel, do you want to just put your money where your mouth is or, and introduce <laughs> us to uh, Four Gardens? I don't know if I do now. I don't want to come after such a succinct summary. Um, yes, so um, Four Gardens is by Marjorie Sharp. It's one of her very early novels, actually. I think I'm right in saying it might be her third or second, maybe. Um, and it's quite different in tone to her later novels, which are quite um, humorous. This is, is not humorous at all. Um, not that it's depressing, but it's just not humorous. And uh, this is what I mean, Claire. You know, I just can't get to the point. <laughs> um, so oh, this, is, this is chaotic. Quickie <laughs> go. So it um, tells us the life of Caroline is the main character and the four gardens that mean something to her throughout different phases of her life. So we start out um, in the 19th century when she's a child and the first garden she has, which doesn't belong to her, it belongs to a, an abandoned house in the town where she lives and where she meets the first person she falls in love with. And then it moves on to the garden she has in the first house she has when she's married and then on to the house she has when her circumstances improve when she's married. So when she first gets married, they don't have very much money. Then they have a lot of money and then the house that she has there. And then finally, um, in the last stage of her life, um, the garden she has um, after, well, I won't say what happens because then that will be a plot point. But, um, and uh, it also tells the story of, of a woman's life through that. So of growing up, of, of a marriage, of motherhood. Um, and all of that is actually the gardens aren't as prominent as you think they're going to be. Um, they're more a sort of, you know, framing device that isn't used as much as, as you might expect. But it's a wonderful novel about, um, yeah, what it is to be a woman, I think. There we are. Lovely. Thank you very much. Um, and as you say, Claire, you've been recommending them for a while and we're very grateful that we can now very easily. Get them. But, uh, but how did you first come across these books? Oh, um, D.E. Stevenson, I discovered through blogging. And then I just let rip on <laughs> as many of her books as I could get hold of. So I think, you know, the thing that probably started it off was when Bloomsbury, um, reissued, um, the first of the Mrs. Tim books. I think that was the first one out. Um, 
And I read that and I was like, this is wonderful. Where can I get more? Nowhere was the answer at that stage. So I went down a long, long path with the interlibrary loan system, um, uncovering books. And this was one of the best ones that I found. Um, yes, Rachel, when you need more D.E. Stevenson suggestions, because I also do not love Miss Bunkle's book. Oh, OK. That's good to know. Yeah. I am your person. OK. okay. Um, and uh, Marjorie Sharp was another another discovery through blogging, particularly through uh, Barb at Leaves and Pages. Mm-hmm. She is a huge fan of Marjorie Sharp, and I know this is one of her very favorite books. So, it uh, it this one took a lot of work to track down back in the like back in the olden days before Dean Street Press reissued yeah, it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> thank you so much, Dean Street Press. Um, yeah, so. It was uh, it was a labor of love because of other bloggers, basically, tracking down all of these. And I have to say, I have very mixed feelings about Marjorie Sharp, um, but this is one of the ones that I do love of hers. I find that she, get, she gets very funny as she continues as an author, but it's, you know, she's almost trying to be too clever, too sly with a lot of her humor as she goes on, and I just find it tiresome. I don't know. Oh, Whereas here, yeah, whereas... In her best books, I think she is able to manage humorous moments as well as, you know, characters that you can actually care about that are, you know, that feel more like real people rather than caricatures that are just there for the purpose of a joke. That is my highly biased opinion about Marjorie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I very love everything I've read by Marjorie Sharp, but I do. <laughs> but I, yeah, this is definitely uh, a lot more nuanced Um than say the stone of chastity or something which i also love but but it's not it's not a farce uh at all although i think i disagree with you saying that it's not a funny book rachel because i think uh i I find it quite funny um i think a lot of the humor for me comes from caroline's um sort of disparity between the who caroline presents to the world and who she actually is and she's not sort of snide about people but you can tell that she is often humorously reflecting on them whilst being very Mm sort of a straight face to them, I guess. No one more so than her inverted commas friend, Ellen, whom she <laughs> despises. <laughs> but, uh, and how sad to live in a community where you, by proximity and lack of travel options and all that sort of thing, you have to become close friends with someone who you actively dislike. Yeah, that is that is why I'm not drawn to the idea of village life, I have to say, guys. <laughs> I know, I mean, I'm an, I know. <laughs> yeah, I do, I, I do have friends outside the village, I can confirm. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and yeah, I, um, well, so maybe I should start talking about the D.E. Stevenson and I will confess that as I started, I, I started slightly trepidatiously because I have enjoyed, a bit, uh, some D.E. Stevenson. I don't love Miss Muggles' book. I, I really like Mrs. Timoth Regiment, although it could not be more obviously a rip-off of the Diary of French Lady. <laughs> but you know, <laughs> but if you're rip something no... off, <laughs> go with quality. Sorry, yeah, well, quite exactly. There's no, there's no bad thing in having more of that. But, but yeah, I was a little nervous when um, Five Windows opened because we were talking about those Victorian children's books earlier. It did start to, feeling to me a bit like a sort of a Victorian morality child, morality novel with this very moral child who mm-hmm. was saying sort of heavenly things about a, a shepherd um, and and how <laughs> wonderful it was that people could go to heaven and that sort of thing. <laughs> um, and I was so relieved when he started disliking people later on. <laughs> Finally, <laughs> and that group that that group of people who are using him for 
to use his money and don't care about him and pretend to be his friend. In the boarding house. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The, boarding, the boarding house is brilliant. I love a boarding house. In oh, who, who doesn't love a boarding house? Yeah. Yeah. And it's towards just, them. You know, it's always the awful landlady and the descriptions of greasy food. I just think, oh my God, how <laughs> awful. People used to live like this. Um, and so, yeah, whilst it became much less bucolic at that point, I enjoyed the novel a lot more because I thought, yeah, I, I liked that he wasn't just charming and wonderful, but he had a bit of bit more bite to him by the time he got to meet unpleasant people. And and he and he learns that he needs that bite too. I think, right, yeah. which is part of like seeing him grow up in that way and realize, oh wait, I don't actually have to stay in this horrible boarding house with these horrible people, and finding a way to strike out on his own. I mean, I love any. Any book which talks about, you know, making a home is always really fun. Yeah, and yeah. when when he finds the flat that he, he moves into on his own, when he flees the boarding house, like, I love yeah. that. Mm, that was great. Me too. And I was thinking to myself, gosh, wouldn't it be great if it were that cheap to rent a flat above Covent Garden these days? So easy. But, uh, <laughs> Life is yeah. so easy. <laughs> yeah. And then you just inherit a cottage in the countryside. Good to go. Um, but it, I, I think. <laughs> While well, selling I, your first book. Like, yes, yes, yeah. Okay. Obviously, your first book that never published anything. That you saw that. Um, I mean, it is uh, what happens to him is is um, quite convenient, obviously. But um, I found that when it started, I I was really anxious as well because I thought, oh god. First of all, I was like, is this supposed to be the voice of a nine year old boy? Because I don't think <laughs> T. Stevenson ever met one. Um, and then I was like, oh, okay, it's a retrospective. Okay, I'm, I'm understanding. He's obviously older. This is a memoir. I thought it was interesting that she'd chosen to frame it through the voice of a man, actually. I was intrigued. Mm -hmm. I'd be intrigued to know why she made that decision. Um, but I, I think it's, um, I was worried too that it was going to be mawkish, basically. I was like, well, here we go. He's going to be like walking on the hills and having thoughts about being good. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know he's going to go to London and everyone's going to be awful to him and he'll come, come back to the countryside with his tail between his legs and it's going to be that sort of story but actually it's a very sensitive story about what it is to grow up and to grow up somewhere where everybody's nice to you and where you grow up in a small community of people who you know everyone you, you kind of you're respected and, and people respect you and to go out into the world and have to make your own way and realise actually not everybody is nice and sometimes I can't be nice. Um, sometimes it's okay for me not to be nice. I love Tia's realisation that actually sometimes I do need to put my foot down. Um, and it doesn't make me a bad person if I say no to people. Um, I just thought it, it was actually, I was quite surprised it was written when it was written because it feels much more modern in some ways in that sense of its um, emotional sensitivity. Yeah. And I think... Actually, thinking back to what Simon was saying about four gardens and, you know, not being able to choose your friends and villages. Mm. Yeah. I, I think also that there's no rosy glasses for David when he grows up and he looks back on, you know, this wonderful place he's grown up in Scotland and realizing, oh, you know, the, the neighbors there, you know, are just as awful in their way as the people he met at the boarding house that, you know, they can be just as petty, just as small minded, just as jealous. And seeing that through new eyes as he grows older, which, you know, his parents could see when they were, when he was young, but he couldn't necessarily see, you know, the way his best friend was. She was like that as a child. She's definitely like that as a grown up. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and that's, realizing. I, I, sorry. 
that you know that's I found really interesting is how he starts to because I when it starts when the book started I thought oh I can see where this is going to go he's going to marry her when he gets older and then as he gets older and he realizes so actually she's his best friend from childhood is actually not a particularly nice person um I thought that was really well handled as well the ability to to recognize that actually people you can change and move on from people in a way when other people don't change and um I, I think sometimes in novels about countryside versus city countryside people can be lazily depicted as being these sorts of you know pure-hearted simple folk um, and we are but yeah, there's lots of that in D.E. Stevenson yeah. by the way oh, right. okay, yeah, it I'm definitely gonna, shows up in the other books <laughs> I'm going to need your help to navigate my way through but it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting that as you say that the local family the Lorimers who live up the road are depicted as being a very troubled family you know living in the countryside doesn't make them good people um, they are just as bad as city people. And I, I also like that she celebrates London and says how great London is and how much she actually enjoys being there because often novels of this type just like do London down and talk about how dirty it is and how off it is. I'm like, yeah, it is one of those things, but it's still great, actually. <laughs> and he has well, the best boss, too. I would just... He does. <laughs> yeah. It, it's not like you're going to work and it's horrible and, you know, they're grinding you to a pulp. It's like, no, actually people are well not all of them but you know the the actual person in charge is interested in him as a human being and you know wants to help him succeed in whatever way he's he wants to succeed whether it's in the office or outside of the office or the writing career and that was lovely it's not the big bad city every time and it's a lot truer to you know the good managers and bosses i've had in my life as well so it's nice to see that in fiction particularly by an author writing about an author yeah yeah yeah, I will say the I, one downside for this book for me was the depiction of twins. Not not great. <laughs> Fair depiction of twins. Are, are you the evil twin? Are you the twin? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's the it's the cardinal thing of like <laughs> twins are opposites always, and then they had to get apart because being near your twin is really detrimental to your character. <laughs> and I think oh, that's horrible. Don't like that. I would um, say it for D. E. Stevenson. It's probably less an issue of twins of or then it's just of sisters. Like you, anytime there's okay. multiple sisters in the family in a D.E. Stevenson book, you're like, oh, oh, I, someone's going to be awful here. Someone's okay. going to be, someone's going to be the bad sibling who's going to, you know, try and ruin Intriguing. the other sibling's life. It's, it's going to happen. It, <laughs> make, it makes you wonder whether she had siblings and what her experience was like. Yeah. Is she writing from life here? Um, we should talk about Four Gardens of Two, of, of course. So, um, yeah, whilst the windows, I think, cover, they are, it's just a way of saying the five different places he lives, really, isn't it? Although it frames with the windows. The gardens, as Rachel said, some of them more significant than others. I did particularly love that first one. That It did feel a bit like the secret garden, actually, that yeah. um, she breaks through into this neglected uh, place with a lot of potential. And um, I can't remember the name of the man she meets there, but uh, meets this man that she falls in love with. And this, uh, oh, that rings a bell, yes. Uh and it's almost like they're meeting in a different dimension or somewhere that's completely different from the rest of the world um, and without the sort of um, issues of class or of wealth or of anything else that would affect the, their friendship in the real world. Um, Which is yeah, partic- definitely there in that village, speaking of challenges mm-hmm. of village life, right? Very much mm-hmm. two worlds. Yeah, the common and not ironically yeah. not common. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah, I think um, 
a Carrie. I thought Carrie Caroline was such a wonderful character, and, we, and I didn't normally like books which show us the present day and then scoot back to to move up to you know slowly through time. But I liked that that only took us halfway through the novel. Yeah, it wasn't like it wasn't like we'd seen the end already. We'd just seen part of it. Um, and I think because we've seen her in this set of where where her children think that she is out of touch with everything and doesn't have any sort of intelligence or emotional depth, uh, that sets us up to be on her side in the first place. And <laughs> suddenly, I was rooting for her throughout. Um, and I thought uh, the trajectory of her of her life to to marriage and children was really interesting. In that she'd married this man who was neither good nor bad. Well, he was very good, but neither good nor bad for her. Um, mm-hmm. Just very dull and probably much more realistic in terms of who women from that era would have ended up with like a suitable man who asked her rather than necessarily the great love or a great monster yeah yeah i thought that was very very well drawn actually and the fact that she does grow to love him and care for him and appreciate him but Mm -hmm. um i also thought he was brilliantly drawn in that you could tell he obviously had all of these feelings but just had never been able or understood how to express them um and my heart just you know kept breaking for them the whole way through just like well you just sit down and tell each other how you really feel about each other for goodness sake um and it yeah I just thought it was a an incredibly true to life portrayal and it's very um understated as a novel I think and that's why I mean it's different to have other novels and I mean I agree with you there is humor in it but I don't the the humor in her later novels is quite um overt i think and they are it just there is an element of fast to them whereas this is just gentle and understated in a way that feels more true to life i suppose yeah i i would certainly agree with that and i think the way her children grow up as well i think that's one of the sources of gentle humor which in a different book could perhaps become a a source of gentle tragedy. But here, you know, she has these, obviously, like many parents, she has these visions of what her children will grow up to be and what she thinks that they are. And then suddenly she's realizing what lives are they leading? What is happening Mm. here? And how little she understands of what they're doing or where they're headed. And I mean, they're, they're quite sweet to her, but it's very much like, Oh, you know, our our mother's a little silly. Um, They're not including her in their in their lives in any way. So it's, uh, it, it's interesting to see that also to see how they change um, towards the end, I guess, to the, the fourth garden and her relationship with them changing as their life circumstances change. Yeah. And I loved uh, Lady Tregarthen. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. yeah. So she's this, um, uh, this, upper class neighbor who calls on her once she's in a better state of life and she's very you know we before she arrives on the on the scene we get this image of what she, what she might be like based on her title and her wealth and she's just very down to earth i'm trying to think of what it is they bond over oh oh polishing silver. silver isn't yeah. it yes yeah. uh, uh the first thing is that how much they both love doing that and yeah she's so spirited and this you know quite a sad end to their friendship i guess but um but mm. in a way that doesn't diminish the character uh, I would have loved a whole novel about her. But she, I think yeah. she's fantastic. Uh, for inadvertent humour, can we talk about Carrie's concerns about being middle-aged when she's 34 and looking for grey hair? <laughs> yeah. Young, younger than all of us. So. Yep. Yeah, but, you know, we've all, I'm sure Claire will also recognise that feeling when you do discover your first grey hair and you think, oh, my God, it's all well, over. At least you've got hair, hair Rachel. Oh, yeah, no, that's true. <laughs> but it's very hard when you've got very dark hair because they do notice straight away. 
So my nephew did say to me the other day that he was like, oh, you haven't even got any gray hairs, Rach, not like mum. And I was like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Extra presents for that nephew. Yeah. 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 I was like, it's because I didn't give birth to you, darling. That's why. Yeah. Yeah. That's, how I, that's how I feel with my sister-in-law. She earned every single one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And Marjorie Sharp was only 30 when she wrote this. Um, was she? So, Child, yeah. oh my God. Yeah. No wonder like, she was a... expecting gray hairs in the 34-year-old. Yes. <laughs> and it was, in fact, her sixth novel. It's, and she, in, oh. in the course of five years, so she really For did... For um, sake, well, yeah. make the rest she of She had already written The Flowering Thorn by by this point, which I, is probably my favorite of her books. Oh, I've not read I that one. No, okay. I've not read that one either. Is that, that, hasn't, that hasn't been reprinted, has it? <laughs> it ha- um, it was maybe in. It uh, what, what were those people who did almost print on? It was demand at Open Road who did. Yes, I think yeah. Open. Yeah, that's where I've got. It. I got Flowering Thorn, and Something Light are probably my two favorites of hers at very different ends of her career. Um, like 1934 and Wikipedia to the rescue, 1960 <laughs> for Something Light. Yeah. So. Yeah, because um, we've done previously, uh, we did we do Clooney Brown and The Gypsy in the Parlour? Is that what we did, yeah. Rachel? Yes, yeah. we did, yeah. Uh, which, again, are quite different. One's much more comic and one's a little more, um, not somber, but it's, yeah, less comic, I guess. Uh, Brit- Britannia Muse, I think, is probably the, the darkest one of hers that I've read, which I did also. I mean, I've liked everything, but um, Britannia Muse yeah. is quite miserable at times, which this, um, yeah, this one is not comic but also it's not miserable no misery no nice. <laughs> uh, maybe now is such a good time for your uh d stevenson recommendation corner claire okay well actually you know it's going to align well with um with this book because as uh as rachel was talking about you know being surprised that stevenson was writing from the male perspective here the other books of hers that are like my absolute favorites are also ones that are dealing with male protagonists rather than female ones and that is Ooh. the English Air, which is part and and Green Money. Both of these are in the the set of books that have been recently reissued by Dean Street Press. So they're really easy to get, in that they came out this month in January 2022. Wow. Um, is this and, is this Air with an H or with an A? A. A. Right. Gotcha. A. And it is about a young German man who comes to Britain to visit cousins in the 1930s, and you know his. His processing of what he's seeing in Britain versus what he knows back home in Germany, and obviously the heightening political tensions um, as the Nazis are rising, and his father is very sympathetic to them, and has views for how his son's life should turn out, while his son is feeling more and more drawn to um, to England, which is where his mother is from, and I love it. it yeah, it's it's certainly yeah. one of my favorites of hers, and then Green Money basically feels like a Georgette Hare book um, written by Stevenson. It, it's, a, it's a contemporary story set in the 1930s about a young man who finds himself with a, a very silly ward and running around and all sorts of adventures. His mother is probably one of uh, Stevenson's weaker characters. She's Irish, and that is like her entire personality oh, based on that. Um, but aside from that, it's delightful. And obviously, I love all of the Mrs. Tim books, all four of them. Okay. Yes, I, as you mentioned that, I was worried when I started um, Five Windows that we'd be treated to a lot of Scottish dialect, but thankfully, <laughs> sparing with it. <laughs> and actually, for Rachel, one of the non 
male protagonist books I think you might like is Listening Valley, which is okay. a- another nice one set during the Second World War um, and about a young woman kind of finding her independence first through marriage and then widowhood um, very young and going on from there. And it is it is a village novel. I think I'm fairly confident. It's been a couple of years since I reread it, um, but it's lovely. Okay. That, that is not from Dean Street Press, but it was reissued a few years back by someone else who okay. I can't remember at this stage. Speaking of uh, village scenes, I meant to mention last time, I'll just throw it in here, that mm-hmm. when Rachel came to visit, uh, on the way between the railway station and my flat, we stopped at Thrush Green. We did. Aww. It was so exciting. <laughs> Um, which is surprise. actually called, I can't remember, something else. But uh, it's on the outskirts of Whitney. But it is, uh, apparently, someone's done a lot of research. And every house there is identifiable from the Thrush Green books by Miss Reed, I should say. In case that's not obvious. Um, but yeah, it was fun. It was a fun place to stop. Yeah, it's really beautiful. Really. Um, yeah, it's lovely. Um, well, we're coming up to an hour. So I guess we should make our decision. Uh, Claire, you've been thinking about this for many years. So did you... <laughs> <laughs> Had you had, had you had your decision in, in mind the whole time as well? Yeah, easiest decision of my life. Uh, I love Five Windows best. I, I think Four Gardens is wonderful, but a Five Windows has my heart for multiple reasons. So that's my pick. Um, I, I did enjoy Five Windows a lot. I think there is just that bit more bite in general to Marjorie Sharp's writing. And she's just, I don't know, her tone is always exactly up my street. And I did prefer... Four Gardens, which I really loved. So I'm going to be a vote for Marjorie Sharp. Rachel, you're the decider. I'm really struggling here because I absolutely love both of them um, for very different reasons. And I mean, I'd be hard pressed to make a choice, to be honest with you. But, you know, if you're holding a gun to my head. Well, then... that is the, the whole premise uh, of the podcast, Rachel. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Um, I think because I actually cried this morning reading this book, I think I'm going to go with uh, Five Windows. Yes. Uh, there you go. Claire yeah. wins both both halves. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not a competition, but if it were, it's you'd win. very you mean, the premise <laughs> is very much a competition, guys. Like, yeah, yeah, it's true. It's true. <laughs> we always need to get a third person in so one of us can taste victory. But, um, <laughs> well, thank you so much for both suggesting these topics and for joining us. It's been such a pleasure to have you, Claire. We'll have to have you back. Sometime. Yeah. I would love that. It's been a delight to be here. And the sun is finally rising here in Vancouver. We should yeah. mention actually saying thank you so much for you getting up at literally the crack of dawn um, yes. to see this with us. <laughs> and, and the sun is setting outside my window, more or less. So yeah. we, 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 we cover the whole day between us. Um, in the next episode, Rachel and I will be discussing Moon Tiger by Penelope Lively and The Diviners by Margaret Lawrence, a Canadian author. Yeah, was where we ended up. I asked Twitter and didn't take any of their advice. But, but, <laughs> so, but someone mentioned Stone Angel, which got me thinking about Margaret Lawrence and the, and the Margaret Lawrence novels I've not read yet. So, um, yeah, well, Moon Tiger have... is one of my favourite books, so I will listen with interest. Oh, excellent. And I know Rachel loves it um, as well. Yeah. I've not yet read it. Uh, fantastic. Lovely. Thanks again, Claire. And we will speak to you all next time. Bye. Bye.